Good morning. As you know, this morning we are uh, beginning our, our study of Genesis. We're going to look at the first chapter, perhaps the first words ever written. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Last week we talked a little bit about uh, why we're, we're studying Genesis. We, we talked about the, the reality that if we're ever going to understand ourselves, our, our lives, our relationships, each other, we need to understand a little bit about where we come from, how we were designed, uh, what that tells us about ourselves. So this morning we're going to talk some about us, about humans, or who we are. Uh, what's true about us. But the Bible makes sure that we start in the right place. If we ever hope to, to really understand ourselves, it has to start with God. We were created in His image. We were designed to be in relationship with Him. So if we want to understand ourselves, we have to start with God. So in one sense, we're, we're beginning this study. Our motives are to understand ourselves and each other, our lives. We're starting with an anthropocentric, a human-centered motive. But as we start this study, if we do it with our eyes open, our hearts open, something profound will happen. As we begin to glimpse God for who He is, as we enter honest relationship with Him, we will see even our motive begin to shift. Rather than just uh, coming to understand ourselves, to know more about us, we will find as we look at His goodness, His love, His power, His creativity, We'll find our heart's longing, our felt need shift to knowing Him. Knowing Him will cease to just be a means to an end. It becomes the goal. And when this happens, things will be as they should be. We will become truly theocentric, God-centered. Knowing Him will become our life, our joy. And knowing our wonderful, powerful, wise awesome creator. Now one more thought just to get us started. When we humans try to figure God out on our own, there is an inevitable, uh, an irresistible tendency to create God in our own image. When, when all we have is our own imaginations, our own understanding, we are limited just to ourselves. We can't go beyond ourselves. And sadly, our view of God becomes limited. We begin to, to restrict and to distort the truth about God. And that's what we're after, the truth about God, not our puny speculations. But when we let Him reveal Himself to us, the other side of that picture is that that is a difficult unsettling, uh, uh, kind of upsetting process because he is more than we can grasp. He, he, he's beyond our imaginations. He's beyond our understanding. And sometimes there is confusion there as we don't understand, as we struggle to understand. But the wonderful thing about that process is as we engage in it honestly, our understanding, 
our imaginations get stretched. We grow. Our abilities expand and deepen. You see, we will be in this tension for all eternity, knowing that there's more, that he is more than we grasp. But in the midst of that, we will be perpetually growing, deepening, increasing. See, this is the wonderful process, the, 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 the exciting occupation of eternity, getting to know our God seeing Him more clearly, understanding more about Him. And and each new insight, each new understanding takes us to new levels of joy and delight, ever growing, ever increasing, ever deepening. What a privilege it is for us to begin that process now. Like I said, our our desire is to know Him, to, to know the truth about God. And the only way we're going to come by that is for Him to reveal it. God has basically three ways that He has revealed Himself. Ultimately, most completely, He revealed Himself in His Son, Jesus. And we will hit on that all the way through our study of Genesis. Secondly, He's revealed Himself in Scripture. There we have God's thoughts, His words in human language. And then finally, He has revealed himself in what he has created, what his words have called into being. Like we read last week in Romans 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at what he's made. See what that tells us about him, his Eternal power and divine nature. That also defines our study for us. That's what we're going to do. We are not going to be looking at these passages to to, uh, glean from them all of the scientific information about how God created, nor are we going to approach these passages to, to try to refute all of the theories out there. Those are both valid and valuable Exercises, ways of approaching these chapters, these passages. And I uh, find that the reading that I do in those areas stimulating, exciting. And I would recommend to you reading in those areas. There's a lot of good books. You can pick them up at, at the family bookstore or other places. And I would encourage you to do that. But again, what we're going to be doing together is looking at, at, at the Word and seeing what it tells us about God. We won't have time to go in much detail. We'll kind of skim the details. But again, we'll ask the question, what does this tell us about our wonderful God? Let's get into it. Again, it starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, it takes us back to the beginning of our cosmos, the beginning of the universe that we live in. Now, when that was, exactly how long ago, godly, Bible-believing, spirit-filled men and women disagree. They have different theories, different, different estimates. Do you need to know that there isn't universal agreement on that? I personally believe in a relatively young earth, probably no more than 10,000 years or so. But again, you need to realize that there are believers 
who, uh, who differ. The point is that in the beginning, God created matter, space, and time. And he created them out of nothing, as the theologians say, ex nihilo. Matter, space, time did not exist until God created them. Now, what does that tell us about our God? First of all, it tells us that he is the only thing that is eternal. That, that, that there is nothing else and no one else that stands next to him. He has no peers. He has no competitors. We do not live in a dualistic universe where there's an equally powerful yin and a yang, you know, good and evil. No, God created it all. He is alone supreme. And he has power over all of it. He is sovereign over all of it. I remember uh, years ago on the Bill Cosby show, Bill Cosby was was jokingly saying to his son, Theo, he said, listen, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. Now that's inaccurate and inappropriate for, for a mere human father to say because procreation is not true creation. But God could and would be, be justified in saying that to any part of his creation. He has power over every bit of it, over every one. This first verse also tells us that everything rightfully belongs to him. He created it all. It's his. All ownership is derived from him and ultimately goes back to him. He owns it all as its creator. He has claim to every bit of it. And he has claim to us, to you, to me as his creation. And this verse tells us that God is not the sum total of all that is, as if somehow the universe all taken together, all of the matter, all of the energy was itself God. No. He existed before it. He called it into being. Now we see His handiwork in it. He expresses Himself through it, but it is not Him. He is beyond. He is more than what He has created. There's one more uh, fascinating uh, fact about God suggested in this verse, but you kind of have to know the, the Hebrew to, to catch it. The word for God here is Elohim. It's a plural noun. It has that uh, plural suffix, im, on it. But the verb, created, baracha, uh, is a singular verb, making it very clear that the subject is singular. You see this very clearly, uh, even in the English, down in verse 26, where God says to him himself, let us make man in our own image. But again, the verbs are singular. You see, God is three persons. One God. Some people look at this and say, well, this is just an editorial we. Or, or maybe a royal we. Like the queen would say, we are not happy. But the reality is God has existed from eternity in three persons, but one God. Verse 2 talks about the Spirit of God hovering over, over this creation. In John 1, we are told that Jesus was present. He was active. In fact, He was the agent of creation, by whom and through whom all was created. John 17, verse 24, Jesus says something extremely important. He's praying. He's talking to His Father about the glory that the Father has given Him. And He says that this is because you loved Me before the creation of the world. 
Again, we're, we're confronted with a God who is other, who is more than we can comprehend. A God who, who is perfect unity with diversity. He, he, he is, is variety in absolute unity. But even beyond the wonder of this, this tells us that God was loving even before he created this world to love. Now, there are some foolish men who have speculated that, that God had to create because he needed something to love. Uh, he, he was lonely or bored, and he needed to create this universe to, to fill this need in himself. But again, that's just us creating God in our image. The reality is God existed eternally as love. And he has in himself, he is all that he needs. His love for himself, the, the, the three persons of the Trinity loving each other, is eternal. It's appropriate. It's complete. He did not need to create us. And yet he did. This simply is, is further uh, example, further illustration his incredible love, his wonderful grace, out of his own free, unencumbered will. Because he's loving, by his grace, he chose to create us and just lavish his love on us. Let's go on. Verse 2 tells us that the earth was formless and void. When God created the original matter, it was your basic lump with uh, water on it. And it tells us that, that, that it was void or empty. There was no life in it. No life on it. And, and the next verses, the rest of the chapter, explains to us how he formed it and how he filled it. He filled it with life. Before we rush on to that, though, there's one more thing I want you to notice in this second verse. And that is, again, that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, Hovered over his creation. That word hovered is a wonderful word. The only other place it's used in scripture is Deuteronomy 32. Listen to Deuteronomy 32, 9 through 11. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. In a desert land he found him. In a barren and howling waste he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye like an eagle that stirs up its nests and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them, carries them on its pinions. See, like an eagle that hovers over his young. It implies care and love, protection. The Spirit of God was hovering over his creation because he cared that intensely. That intimately, that lovingly. You know, the, the picture here is God paying attention, focused on, on forming and designing this creation out of His love, preparing this globe for the part of creation that He would love, that He would give Himself to, that He would give Himself for, preparing this globe for the creation of humans. See, the Genesis account makes it very clear that this world was created, was formed, really as an expression of God's love in loving preparation for His creation, for a place for us to live. 
See, God is that good. God is that loving. And we are that important to Him. So that's where our significance comes from. We are not just specks on the face of the universe. We are loved by the Creator God. And He made this universe for us. When a couple expects a new baby, they lovingly prepare a room for it. They put in this room things that, 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 that the baby will enjoy. It will delight that baby. They put things in, in, in this room that will be helpful to the baby. They can use to care for the baby. They put things in there that will stimulate the baby. Help it to grow. See, everything that goes into that room is considered on the basis of whether or not it, it, it will be appropriate and good for that baby. See, the Holy Spirit, like a loving mother, was preparing the nursery of this world for the human race. So that's what we have in the next uh, verses. We have the rough details of that preparation. And there's an important uh, structural, uh, something important structurally about how the rest of these verses are put together that I want to draw to your attention. There's a careful correspondence between the first three days of creation and the second three days. There's a correspondence between day one, day four, day two, day five, day three, day six. See, on day one, God created light. On day four, he created the light bearers, the sun, the moon, the stars. On day two, God separated the water that was on the earth from the water that was in the atmosphere. And he created the sky and the seas. On day four, he filled the seas with the sea creature. And he filled the skies with the birds. You see, you have your forming and your filling. That's what God was doing. Day three. God created, God formed the dry land and He put plants on it. On day six, He filled the dry land with all the animals, culminating in the creation of humans. And He gave them the plants to eat. Now some people uh, take this clearly formal style. And for them, this suggests that this is not organized as a, as a, as a literal description of the sequence and time frame of creation. But it's a, a, a poetic description, emphasizing that the world was prepared for man. And these people believe, that their view is that absolutely God created it. And that it still speaks to us clearly of Him. But it is a, a poetic representation. And the poetic description does not lend itself to a scientific description. Now, personally, I don't understand it that way. I believe that even though it is clearly formal in structure, it is still an accurate and factual description of both the sequence and the time frames involved in creation. But again, you need to know that godly, spirit-filled, Bible-believing Christians differ. There, there are... There are technical problems with either interpretation and with the multitude of variations within those interpretations like the length of the days and whether there are gaps and other things that, that need to be explained and answered. But you also need to know 
that there are cogent, reasonable answers to those difficulties. That, 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 that the theories do make sense and are scientifically reasonable. I know what I believe, and I believe it fairly passionately. And I think that I have fairly satisfactory answers for the problems that my interpretation raises. But again, what I would encourage you is to look into these things yourself and discover what you believe. And as you do that, make sure that, that, that you conduct this inquiry with respect and with humility. But the bottom line is God created it all. And He did it in an orderly way. He did it systematically and intentionally. And in looking at what He created, we catch a glimpse of His wisdom, of His skill, of His power, of His goodness. You know, you look at the, the incredible variety, the, the incredible complexity, the, the intelligence that went into creation. And again, we are confronted by the, 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 the awesome goodness of our God, His profound creativity, and His infinite intelligence. So God is smart. You can't look at what he's created and not come to that conclusion. And the, the real glory in empirical science is the exploration of the massive intelligence of our God. He's smart. Now I want to focus uh, real quickly on the creation of humans in verses 26 and 27. Uh, the, 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 the account of the creation of humans goes on to the end of the chapter, but I want to look at just verses 26 and 27. Let me read those. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now again, we could spend uh, weeks, months profitably on just these couple of verses alone. But we don't have that much time. So I'm going to move a little quicker. These verses basically tell us Three incredibly significant things about how humans were designed. Three important aspects of human nature, of human personality. First, in both verse 26 and 27, we are told clearly that humans were created in the image of God. That's repeated over and over. We are created in the image of God. We were created spiritual Beings, And this is what distinguishes us from the rest of creation, from the other animals. You know, a lot of thought has gone into what makes humans different than the other animals. And some people conclude nothing. Others say, well, it's just the size of our cranium. They used to argue that it was the use of tools until they found animals using tools. Some still argue that it's the sophistication of our communication, our language abilities. But you see, these are all horribly inadequate to truly describe the difference between humans and the rest of creation. 
We are not just different in quantity. We are different in quality. We were created spiritual beings. We were created in the image of God. And what does it mean to be a spiritual being? Basically, that just means that we were created, designed with the capacity to know God personally. To be in relationship with Him who is spirit. That's the most fundamental reality of the way we were designed. We were fundamentally designed for this purpose, to be in relationship with God, the Creator. But these verses also tell us two other fundamental aspects of the human personality. First, verse 26 tells us that we were created, we were made, designed to work. To, to explore and to exercise caring stewardship over the rest of creation. Now this is part of being in the image of God. God works. He created. He thought about it. He planned it. He designed it. Then He put those plans into effect. He executed them. He brought it about. And He did so with loving concern over those things that He was creating, over those things that He was over. You see, that was to be true of us as well. That, that, that we were to, to apply creative energy to, 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 to the tasks that He had given us, to, to, to exert ourselves mentally, physically, to be productive, and to do so in a loving concern for the rest of creation which God had placed under us. See, we were designed to work, to enjoy work, to, to gain satisfaction from, from work, to, to express ourselves in creative work, to, to form and to fill and to think and to plan and to execute. It's part of how we were designed. And the third aspect of our personality that's described in these two verses is our sexuality. Male and female, he created us. We our sexual beings. And again, this is in the image of God. Now, it doesn't mean that God has a physical body with sexual characteristics. Our physical bodies were designed for procreation much in the same way the animals were. But implicit in our sexuality, which goes way beyond the physical, are, are embedded mysteries about God. Again, God is variety with perfect unity. He is one God, yet three persons who are of the same substance, yet relate to each other in love and support and encouragement and mutual submission. He created the human race with variety. We are men and we are women. But we are designed to be supportive, to, to learn from each other, to, to encourage each other, to mutually submit to each other. We see this ultimately most, most wonderfully demonstrated in marriage, which is, is God's picture of, of unity with two very diverse people, very different from each other, but learn to love each other, support each other, submit to each other. But even beyond marriage, the, the fact that we are men and that we are women expresses some of who God is. Neither maleness nor femaleness alone expresses the character, the nature of God. Together we do. And so for me to truly understand 
my God, His character, His personality. It's necessary for me to be involved in loving, honest, communicating relationships with both men and women. To, to be seeing in my brothers and my sisters the glimpses of God's character, His personality. Now, one critically important implication of this is our understanding of the equality and the value of the sexes. In Scripture, God has chosen to communicate Himself as Father. And there are wonderful truths implicit in that designation. But it is wrong. It's a distortion to think that somehow that implies a superiority of maleness over femaleness, or that somehow men are more in the image of God than women. Father here is a relational term, not a gender-specific term. And we confuse this when we come to these conclusions. Again, the basic aspect of being in the image of God is that we are spiritual beings capable of knowing Him, of relating to Him personally. And God shows no preference between men and women in this way. Both are equally loved by God. Both have equal access, have equal value before Him, have equal significance as expressions of our God. It is wrong to come to the conclusion that there is some spiritual difference in value or capacity. Again, it's foreign to the descriptions that we have in Genesis of the creation to come to the conclusion that there's a difference in spiritual value or spiritual capacity. Now, understanding these three aspects of the human personality, how we were designed, is absolutely essential to understanding ourselves and each other and our relationships, our society. We are fundamentally created spiritual beings. And then we are also sexual beings and, and, and productive beings. The fall, mankind died spiritually. When sin entered the world, there was death. We were cut off from God, from our relationship with God, and our sexuality and our productivity became distorted. Now listen to this. This is important. Unless our spirituality is restored, we are given a new spiritual life, a new relationship with God. And unless that spirituality is dominant and in control, then one or both of the other aspects of our personality will be. Either we'll be dominated by our sexuality or we'll be dominated by, by our drive to produce, to, 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 to find meaning and fulfillment in our work. Whether that work is something we're getting paid for, whether it's raising children, keeping a nice house, whether it's our hobbies, which are often our, our most creative expressions, or our other activities, our sports. We will be controlled by these things, driven by them, in a sense, enslaved to them. Or our sexuality will dominate us. It will, it, our, our sexual desires will drive and control us. Or, or that, that quest for the right mate will dominate us. Or, or those aspects of our personality which are influenced by our sexuality will become disproportionate and distorted. 
As we look around us in our society, we see this happening. That's the way our society, that's what society is built on. That, that is why God is so clear in Scripture to warn us away from sexual immorality. It enslaves us. And to warn us to, to get our priorities right, to seek first His kingdom rather than our own because it will dominate us. It will control our thoughts and our time and our energies. It will drive us. See, the bottom line is without a relationship with God, our spirituality being in control, that relationship with God being in control, one or both of these other aspects of our personality will be in control. And that's true of billions on this earth are enslaved to this. It will be a form of enslavement of one kind or another. It will drive us. But when our God and our relationship with Him is in control, then our sexuality, then our work finds its proper place and its proper expression. Again, that's why our loving God demands total submission so that we can receive from Him balance, health, so that He can give us true freedom in that relationship with Him. Now let me uh, call you personally to account we all struggle in these areas. Ever since sin entered this world, no one is immune from struggle and distortion in our work, in our attempt, again, whether that work is in the home, raising children, working in an office, whether that work is hunting or other creative hobbies. We all struggle for balance. When we talked about Cole Community Carl, Cole Community Carol, we talked about just how driven we are, how many things we're demanding our time, our energy. The answer really begins with submission to our Creator God, what, what the Scripture calls fear of the Lord. That's where it starts. And again, let me ask you to look at your life. Is it balanced? Is your sexuality dominating your thoughts, your energies? Is, is, your, is your production, your creativity driving you? Look at your, your thoughts. Look at your schedules. Is it balanced? Well, what's our hope? What's your hope? What's your way out? Well, the answer, again, is God. And what have we learned about God here? Well, first of all, we learned that He is powerful. He created everything that's around us out of nothing. He, he, he threw up the mountains. He dug out the seas with a word. Didn't even break a sweat. And the question we've got to ask is, is He powerful enough to handle your problems, no matter how hard they are? Second, we learned that He is smart. I mean, He designed an atom. He, he, he designed the laws of physics. Some of my favorite quotes from Einstein are him saying, all I'm trying to do is glimpse a little of God's thoughts. God put together a human body. He didn't need us to consult and tell him how to do it. He didn't need us to tell him how, how to develop this incredibly intricate ecosystem. Now the question again, is he smart enough to handle your life, your problems, no matter how complex? 
And third, and this is the most important, we learned that God is good. And He created everything He created out of His love. It's an expression of His goodness. In fact, at every stage in creation, He stepped back and He looked at it and He said, It is good. The word there, tov, good, is more than just moral goodness. It also means beautiful, wonderful, delightful. See, this is an expression of our God's goodness. He wanted it to be beautiful. He wanted it to be wonderful. He wanted us to experience the wonder and delight of looking at all He has created, exploring it, understanding it, seeing how it works, and just to be amazed at His goodness. He gave us the ability to see colors, to smell, to taste, because He wanted it to be a delight to us. He is good. Power is dangerous. Intelligence is intimidating until we realize His goodness, that His power, His intelligence is used to love us. That's where His heart is. That's where He's coming from. He can be trusted because He Himself is tov. He is beautiful. He is loving. And really, that's the, that's the point. That's the bottom line in, in the whole book of Genesis and in the first chapter of Genesis. God can be trusted. He created this world. It belongs to Him. He created us to lavish His love on us, for us to be in loving relationship. We were designed for relationship with Him. But He also created us with free will, with choice, to decide whether we wanted to love Him back. And we did not. That's the mess our world is in. But the rest of Scripture, the, the, the rest of history, is what God did to reclaim that relationship. Let me tell you how He did it. He sent His Son Jesus into the midst of the confusion, into the midst of the mess. And Jesus was the perfect image representation of God in all of His aspects. And Jesus showed God's wisdom, God's power, God's love, so that we would see clearly beyond doubt that He can be trusted. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our unwillingness, our, our, our failure to love our Creator back. And all He asks is that we trust Him. And if you trust Him, you will obey Him. And if you obey Him, you'll see His power, His wisdom at work in your life, and you'll come to know Him intimately and worship Him as your God who loves you. And you don't obey Him to gain that love or to gain that relationship. He loves you. He's expressed that in Jesus Christ. And He offers that relationship not because you earned it, but because He loves you. That obedience then is the necessary, inevitable outflowing, working out of that trust. Again, submission to Him. As you submit to Him, you experience again the goodness of His creation. Now one final comment, I'll let you go. Our passage ends with the seventh day at the start of chapter 2. I want to look at the first couple of verses of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work He had been doing, so the seventh day He rested from all His work. And He blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it He rested from all the work of creating that He had done. This is the record of the heavens and the earth when they were created. 
So God rested on the seventh day. He sat back and he enjoyed his creation. What he offers to us is that rest. Rest from our confusion. Rest from our striving. Rest from our drivenness, our compulsiveness. He designated that seventh day to be holy, to command us to rest, to give us an opportunity to express trust, to say, I do believe that it doesn't rest on my striving, on my figuring out, on my pushing and shoving, but on you, on the Creator, on the wise, on the good, on the powerful God. See, trust is the door. Trust is the only pathway to that rest that He longs to give us. Let's pray. God, You are worthy, our Lord God, to receive glory, honor, power. For You created all things. By Your will they were created and have their being. We ourselves are fearfully and wonderfully made. Made to know You. We find no rest until we find our rest in You. Lord, may we rest in Your power, in Your intelligence, in Your goodness, in Your love. Pray this because of what Jesus has done and in His name. Amen.